This is part two, uh, and my name is April Christofferson. If you're in the wrong room, um, stick around. You might enjoy this one better. You never know. Um, we have fun in here. Um, so I'm an occupational therapist. We, uh, in our first session, which I thought it was a 45-minute session, so I apologize. I let everybody out early, so we'll catch up here on, on the rest of it. But um, we are going to talk about the sensory systems, and we're going to talk a little more about the application of that when we are out in the field working with pediatrics, what red flags look like, what we should be looking for, how we can work through that. So the five sensory systems that we're going to be working on today, vision, hearing, taste, touch, and smell. So let's tackle vision. Our vision system allows us to see and perceive the world um, in its beauty. So let's look at some of the red flags and how to help with vision. So when, when you look at a child um, of, of, you know, of any age, really, or an adult of any age, there are some things that you want to be looking for. And again, I will put this PowerPoint online for, for those of you who um, might need more information. So this projector is out of focus. And this is the... Um, I think that's the remote for it. Okay, so a child that appears distracted while reading or doing puzzles. When I'm in the clinic and a parent comes in and says, um, you know, and I will, I will start to ask questions about development, and I'll say, you know, what, what things does the child like? Does he like books? No, he hates books. Um, he'll just chew on books. He won't really look at books. Does he like puzzles? No, he hates puzzles. That's a red flag for me because books and puzzles, those are necessary precursors to visual development. Um, they can't find things in a messy drawer or in a cubby. These are kids that, that their, whole, their whole world is a mess. And, you know, I've, I've had friends like this, like where I'll go to their house, and I'm like, how do you find your bed? You know, and it's very stressful for me because I'm a little more type A than that. I'm guessing my speech therapist friend is a little more type A than that as well. Um, but these are kids that they, they have poor ability to see things in a messy environment. They tire very easily. So we've had a lot of um, stuff up on the screen the last couple of, um, of hours, you know, and you guys are looking at a screen. A child who has delays with the visual system will not be able to process very well what's up on the screen. He's hungry. <laughs> Go feed the baby. Um, they're um, decreased with their eye contact. In the first session, I talked about how by the age of six months, I could typically tell if a child was at risk for something like autism. Those are children who will not make eye contact. A child who has reactive attachment disorder or who has had trauma or been abused at a young age, um, children who have sat in an orphanage or in a crib and they've only been swaddled, but they've never had eye-to-eye -eye human contact. The, these are children who are at risk for visual issues. And let me tell you what happens with these kids. By about age six or seven, the teachers are going, he's delayed with his reading. Um, he's not able to write. Okay, so we have got to make sure that at an early age, we're, we're, we're looking for these red flags. So a child who is swaddled, a child who is nursed or given a bottle in a nurturing environment, which we would all love to see, but we know different, right? We know that there are children that don't get that swaddling. They don't get that eye-to-eye -eye contact. Well, right here, 
from a very early age, when that baby first makes eye contact with mom or dad, that is developing the vertical eye ocular motor control. Okay? That is important because if that doesn't develop, those of you sitting at a table and taking notes today, you won't be able to look at the screen and then look back at your notes and look back up and find what you're taking note of, okay? So, so the ocular motor development starts at a very early age. These are kids that behave better in natural light, okay? And for the life of me, I can't figure out why hospitals and schools put fluorescents in every room. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's crazy to me because I, I prefer to work in natural light. Um, I'm, I'm blessed right now because I'm not under the fluorescence, but studies have actually shown that fluorescent lights increase migraines. They increase um, your eye's ability. Uh, they decrease the eye's ability to maintain focus, okay? So from a, from a standpoint of, you know, tiring your eyes out, working in fluorescence all day is, is a big deal. So I always tell teachers, um, you know, turn the lights out in your room and, and just put up, like if any of you were teachers, put up like a, a table lamp or something else or a floor lamp. Or like if it was up to me, I'd have all the fluorescents off in here, but this side of the room doesn't have any lights, um, any windows. So um, just try to work in um, natural light. And these are also kids that can't copy. They can't copy shapes. So in um, the first hour, we talked about by the age of about three and four, kids are starting to copy circles and they're drawing lines and they're starting to cross midline. These are kids that can't do that because visually they are not able to um, configure those. Okay, so some ways that we can help with these kids decrease the classroom visual stimulation. This is a great room for decreased visual stimulation. You don't have a lot going on in this room. But does this look like a typical room that a child who's six or seven would be in for school? The answer is no. I'll, I'll answer that for you. I know you were thinking it, but I'll, I'll go ahead and answer it. Um, typically, kindergarten and first grade teachers, they have everything in their room because it's, it's pleasing to the eye. Parents like to walk in and they like to see that the teacher has put some effort into the bulletin board and, the, and that there are fun toys and things like that. But a child who has some visual delays, they need less stimulation visually. These are also kids who can't listen and look at you at the same time. Again, a red flag for autism. So children with autism can listen or look, but not both, because the auditory motor pathway um, is not developing the same way. There's a white matter difference in the brain and how that has developed. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. So uh, minimizing clutter. Also a soothing timeout area with dim lighting and little to no visual stimulation. So for those of you in the field or if you're in a hospital setting or if you are um, working in a home environment with children, I always like to say, um, you know, if you don't have a room in the house that you can create, a pop-up tent is a great idea, okay? And you can get them for $30 at Walmart. And if you can't afford that, that's okay. Go to an appliance store and get a refrigerator box, okay? What kid doesn't love to sit in a refrigerator box? I mean, come on. I uh, love getting refrigerator boxes. I did 
probably a whole month of therapy, and every kid would come in, and they'd want to do something in the box, okay? So that that's a great way to do it. You can also create your own little, you know, shelter out of cardboard or, you know, blocks or whatever. If none of that seems to help, you really need to refer for a vision exam. And let me talk you through this. This is not an acuity exam. This is my pet peeve. So an ophthalmologist or an optometrist is going to be looking for acuity. That is how clearly you see. This side of the room, you are not seeing my screen very well, right? So your acuity, if it, you know, is off. This side of the room, you have a clear screen. That's very different than ocular motor. Okay, so I would tell you that 80, uh, close to 80%, if not more, of the children that I evaluated, that I've evaluated over 25 years, have had some sort of ocular motor delay. And ocular demotor, motor delay is um, similar to if my right arm works but my left arm doesn't work. Okay, so you have got to test ocular motor individually. Your eyes work together. That's how God created them, is to work in tandem as a team. But you do have a dominant eye. But that eye dominance should not be overwhelming as a child, okay, or even as an adult. Because if, um, if you have one eye that is much stronger than the other, do you know that your brain will actually turn off the information for the other eye and go, you know, my resources are being wasted with this left eye. We don't even need it because you're not processing any information coming in through the left eye. So when I test for ocular motor, I put a patch on one eye, I test all the movement. I'm testing vertical, I'm testing horizontal movement. I'm looking to see can the eye move across midline, can it smoothly move, okay? So again, if the eye is not smoothly moving, how is that helpful when you start to read, <laughs> okay? Think about being on a roller coaster and trying to read Fitzgerald, okay, or The Great Gatsby, something that, that you have to actually think through, or Jane Austen, old English li literature. Think about being on a roller coaster and trying to read that. How hard would that be? Okay, a child with ocular motor delays, that's what it's like. They can't keep their eyes where their eyes need to be because it's not strong enough, okay? So the eye muscle, it's a fine motor muscle. You have muscles in your eyes. We all know that, but have you ever really thought about that? So each eye individually has to move smoothly in the plane of motion, both up, down, vertical, okay, on a horizontal and a vertical. Then um, the other eye needs to move the same way. Then we team the eyes. When you go to an ophthalmologist or an optometrist, they're only looking for acuity. They're not looking for movement. So the parents that say, oh, he's fine. I just had his eyes checked. He doesn't need glasses, but he can't read. I always look at eye movement, okay, because it's, um, it's not tough to correct. So if my left side was not as strong as my right side, what would my physical therapist tell me to do? Strengthen my left side, right? Okay, same thing with the eye muscles. We're not talking about becoming vision therapists. We're not talking about becoming, you know, experts at this. These are just little things that you can do. I will tell you that the kids that we were able to correct the ocular motor movement of their eyes, they went from having diagnoses of dyslexia. 
to being okay, okay, because people forget to think about those small motor movements. Okay, let's talk about hearing. So hearing, our auditory system allows us to hear and sense the world around us. Let's talk about some red flags with hearing. Children who have hearing um, issues or who have sensory processing related to the auditory cortex, um, the child is going to make a lot of noises. What they're doing is when they hum, mm, they are actually getting bone conduction input into their body. Okay, that's, that's input. They can't recall or follow directions. Um, how many of you with children get really, really tired of having to tell your kids more than once to do something? Okay, a child with auditory processing delays or disorder is a little different than that child that, that just forgets occasionally. So listening is an active process. Listening is active. Hearing is passive. I can hear a gunshot. I can hear a car go by. And I can't control that. My brain, the auditory nerve in my middle ear is going to tell my brain that was a gunshot, that was a car. Listening is an active um, uh, action. So I have to listen, I have to process. So a child that frequently cannot recall or follow directions um, may be at risk for this auditory processing delay. And I'll give you an example of that. This might be the child that you tell them to do three things in the morning. Get your backpack, put your shoes on, and put your lunch in your backpack. Okay? And five minutes later, they are playing with something in their backpack. Because <laughs> what they remember is backpack. Okay? They're not able to recall the three steps. Get your shoes, put them on, put your lunch in your bag, all of those things. Um, these are also kids that continue to have a startle response to common noises. Um, babies have a startle response that gets integrated at some point that, you know, it goes away. But these are kids that continue to have a startle response. They'll cover their ears. They will talk loudly or shout. Um, <laughs> So my husband right now has a sinus infection, and he's a big guy, and he has a really booming voice. And um, when he's in the car and he's on a conference call, he yells. And, and I always go, we're in a car. Like, I'm sitting right here. You don't have to yell at me. But because he couldn't hear, he can't hear very well right now, he yells. And so kids with damage to their inner ear or their middle ear, or auditory processing delays may compensate by speaking really loud to you so that you can understand what they're saying because they have a hard time understanding you, so they'll compensate in that way. These are also kids that cry or get angry when the classroom is noisy, and you won't even, you know, it's really not something that you would think about. Like, this kid always cries at 11.55. Well, what happens at 11.55 in the classroom? Everybody is getting ready to go to lunch, and there's a lot of activity, and there's a lot of noise in the classroom. The bell is going off. You know, so if we can look at the correlation between activity and why the child is not able to hear it and then control that, 
um, one of the things that I will do with children is I will prepare them. So 15 minutes before the, the bell goes off, you know, Timothy, the bell is going to go off at 11.55. I just want you to be aware, and I want you to prepare for that. You know, and then at 11.50, Timothy, the bell is going to go off in five minutes. Are you ready for the bell to go off? Yes, I'm ready for the bell to go off. That really helps to understand, you know, that I've got to prepare my system for that. Um, the child will also accuse you of yelling at him or her. Um, so my oldest son, who I've talked a lot about, he's, he's absolutely a great guy. I don't want you guys to get the wrong impression of him if you were here in the first session. But he had a lot, he had frequent ear infections. And kids that have frequent ear infections will have scar tissue buildup. And they have a hard time then with their processing of information because it does sound like they're, you know, a lot of times when you're speaking to them, it's as if you're underwater or they're underwater. They can't clearly hear. And these are kids also that get the end of what you're saying, not usually the beginning. Auditory processing as well. If I tell you two or three things to do, and you only get the end of what I've told you to do. It's because your working memory is not kicking in. You're working so hard to listen because that's active. You're working so hard to listen that you can't recall the steps of what I've told you. Okay? So here's some things that we can do. We can use headphones, and I'm not talking about earbuds. Um, earbuds need to be um, used only on an airplane if you're watching a movie, and maybe not even then. But we need to um, use the whole ear to cover the whole ear. So your ear has purpose. You've got your pinna on the outside, and the, the purpose of this is to filter the sound as it comes in. So it's protecting... Your, um, your outer ear, your middle ear, and your inner ear, which goes directly to your auditory nerve, which is your seventh cranial nerve. Okay, we have to protect that, all right? And your outer ear does that, all right? So if we're going to protect the ear and we're going to help filter some of the sound that a child is hearing, we need to put a headphone over the entire ear. Okay, playing soft music with a steady beat or a metronome in the background to calm down. So um, kids that really, um, you know, they're, they're having a lot of adrenaline rush. They know that they're not listening to you. And this is going to happen over and over and over again. And then, you know, when they do get home from school, they break down because they've held it together and they've had to listen all day. And, you know, I've just, I've had it. I can't do it anymore. So, um, one of the things that I tell parents to do is if you pick up your child from school um, or if they ride the bus home, when it, what, whatever works, is to put a metronome beat on that's about 40 to 50 beats a minute. And we're just going to listen to this. This gives you a foundation for, just, for your movement, for your thoughts. It actually slows you down. You know, the human resting heart rate, the average is about 54 beats a minute. A child from the fetal the time they're conceived, here's once the auditory nerve has been developed, from a bone conduction standpoint, they are getting a 54 beat or the tempo of the mother's heart rate. Okay, so let's just call it 54 beats. They are regulated by a tempo from a very, very early age. So children who are having problems with auditory that lead to behavioral problems, this is really, really one of those Little known secrets, play a metronome at the mother's resting heart rate. 
It'll calm them down like you would not believe. Or if they, if you don't have a metronome, and let me tell you, most of us have smartphones. They're free apps. There's like 15 free metronome apps out there. And all you have to do is plug your phone in to, you know, um, to a speaker, and you don't have to do anything fancy. Don't go buy a fancy metronome, but you can. They're like $5, but I just use my phone. Um, so that will actually really help to calm a child down. Um, you can prepare the child ahead of time for what's coming. I'm going to be vacuuming. You know, um, I'm going to be using the vacuum, um, so maybe this would be a good time for you to go outside and jump on the trampoline, you know, um, so we're going to prepare. And listen, nobody said it was easy. I had to rework our whole family to accommodate my sensory processing kid, you know, and then when my fourth child came around and he had sensory processing as well, it wasn't a big deal because I knew what to do. Um, and honestly, it kind of it kind of sets up your home environment or the classroom environment so that it's a little easier to predict. That's one of the main things that these kids are having trouble with is they can't predict what's coming next, what sound is coming next, what do I need to be prepared for because they have an overactive startle response. The last thing you can do is refer for an auditory exam, but I will warn you that auditory processing disorder is not widely recognized. Why, why we don't know. It's just not, it's not part of the DSM-5, um, the um, ASHA, the uh, Association for Speech and Hearing has not recognized it as a disorder as of now, even though we know that processing sound is something your brain has to do, they just won't call it that. So you can go for an auditory exam. Um, if it's truly a hearing issue, that's great. Your audiologist will be able to help you. If it's an auditory processing delay, speech therapist, occupational therapist, or an audiologist who is trained in auditory processing disorder would be where you would want to go. Touch. Our sense of touch allows us to feel the world around us and plays a pivotal role in everything we do. So let's talk about this. Tactile red flags. Kids who have tactile issues have a constant need for personal space. They are either upset by light touch or they need more touch. Okay, there's, there's two things here that can be going on. Remember, every brain is unique. God did that purposefully. Okay, no two people are alike. That's awesome. Not awesome, though, if you're like a teacher or a parent and you're like, what is it? What is it? Um, these are kids that avoid dirty hands and textures. On the flip side, they're always dirty. Okay, they're always dirty. Um, they won't wear clothes with tags, jeans, underwear, and shoes. I have had multiple children, especially little girls, who all they will wear is dresses, and they will not wear their undergarments. That's a risk, That, especially in our world today. That's a huge risk. You can't send a child to school. You, 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 you just don't want that ever because, um, you know, we do have predators in our world today. And so getting them to... Um, Accept texture is really sometimes very hard. These are kids that refuse to let you wash their face. Um, and this is beyond. No baby or no toddler likes to have their nose wiped. They, they don't like their face washed. You know, we, I mean, do you? Do you like someone to come up and wash your face? This is a little different than that. Um, they really go overboard with their reaction. Um, these are also kids that will use their fingertips to play. Um, and they will only um, touch, like, um, 
like a little boy who might be having tactile issues, he'll touch a max uh, a matchbox car, but he won't touch the carpet if he's playing with it because the carpet has fibers that bother him. So he'll make sure he only touches the car part. So some ways that we can help, um, hugging with constant pressure. What we want to do is we want to activate um, the proprioceptive in the vestibular system, we want to give a constant pressure. Um, that can really calm a child very, very quickly. Um, pet therapy. Pets are amazing for this, you know. Um, a child that falls in love with a pet, now they will tolerate the wet nose of the pet. They will tolerate the lick of the pet. They'll tolerate the different textures of the pet. So that's a great way if there's no allergies. There are some pets that you can get um, that are hypo, hypoallergenic. Um, use of a weighted blanket or heavy object in the lap. So we talked earlier today about circadian rhythms. Some children who have sleep pattern issues, sometimes it's because at night when they sleep, they don't have anything giving them any sense of position in their bed. So let me give you an, uh, an example of this. Um, if you um, are asleep at night and you just have a sheet on you, you might not know where you are in the bed. You might roll off the bed. Or it might not be enough pressure. You might get cold. You might frequently wake up. So putting a heavy blanket on the child, and, and depending on the age, making sure that it's safe, it will actually calm the child down. It gives, a, it gives a pressure. It gives vestibular input, proprioceptive input to the body, directly to the central nervous system that says, calm down. Okay? Calm down. And you can do this as well in school, um, a weighted blanket on the lap. Um, I have, I have uh, treated a lot of boys through the years that, that get the wiggles, and every time I'm trying to get them to do something where it, it, they have to be static, meaning they have to stabilize. Um, like if I'm trying to do something with them with their feet, I'll have them hold on to an eight-pound ball, you know, a weighted ball. I'll go to my physical therapist and I'll say, give me some of your weights. You can use wrist weights. You can use ankle weights um, to give a little more pressure. Um, and this will calm down the whole tactile system. Um, in school or if you're, um, you know, if you're just really having a hard time with a child, a heavy backpack that's loaded with books. Okay, a child, so let's just say their favorite, um, I don't know, this stupid movie, The Trolls, just came out. So this will be everybody's request for Christmas is a troll. So find yourself a troll backpack and load it with heavy things. That way the child can carry it around. They have something that they love, and it gives them the proprioceptive input to their body and their central nervous system, gives them a sense of where they are in space. Um, with these kids, I also uh, like to avoid the front or the back of the line. <laughs> I'm sorry. I like to put them in the front or the back of the line, avoid um, the middle of the line, avoid touching in the middle of the line. Um, also, to organize the body, we organize initially through our oral motor system, okay? So feeding is how we organize as an infant. If you look at an infant who is upset or uptight, typically what will the mom do? She'll either look at is he, is he wet or does he need to be fed? And if neither of those are there, then usually, especially if they're teething, they will want to chew or suck. Um, they might need a binky. Um, 
my oldest child chewed every antenna off of the old, okay, I'm, I'm older, he's 23, so we used to have cell phones with antennas on them. He chewed off the antennas of every phone that I had because he was a seeker. He was what we call an oral seeker. So one of the things you can do, especially if a child is um, dysregulated, meaning they're, they're behaviorally off, they're not, they're not able to stay um, self-regulated with their behaviors, um, chewing gum or sucking applesauce, sucking yogurt, a, a really thick smoothie through a straw. The purpose of this is not developmental. The purpose of this would be oral motor organization for the central nervous system, okay? Um, and it's calming, okay? So the next time you're upset, try sucking something through a straw and see if it helps you. Um, but it, it's amazing how it does help. So if you think about an infant, little Hudson that was just here that was upset, mom will give him a binky and he will calm right down, okay? And that's how we as humans from the very beginning learned how to self-regulate was through the suckle, okay? Smell. Our olfactory system allows us to smell and to taste. Some red flags with smell. If you have a child who has difficulty with different types of food, very picky eaters, or they only prefer certain kinds of food. So children who have olfactory or smelling issues will prefer a bland food. Um, there's also a type of olfactory issue where maybe their right um, brain is only working. And so your olfactory system is ipsilateral, meaning that right brain takes care of right nostril, left brain takes care of left nostril. That's different than motoric. My left brain is controlling my right side, and my right brain is controlling my left side movement. Olfactory, it's ipsilateral, okay? So if we have... Excuse me, if we have damage to one side of the brain or the other, or if, um, if the, the olfactory system has not developed correctly, what you might find is that they prefer certain foods only. So what you can do is group these into two areas. You can group it into savory and, for the most part, sweet. So think about some savory things. That would be coffee. That would be salsa. That would be um, a pungent smell, skunk. You know, something that, wow, you know, you, you, you're going to remember that smell. A sweet smell would be that pleasant lavender, vanilla, different things like that that are more calming, okay? Um, and I always forget which side of the brain um, does which, which smell, but I, I'm pretty sure right side is lavender, sweet, calming, and left side is that savory. Um, so one of the things you can do with these kids that have those preferences is you can retrain the smell system of the brain. And we're going to identify 10 savory smells. We're going to identify 10 sweet smells. We're going to work on that until we're able to identify them correctly. And sometimes that will reset the brain. The other thing we can do is limit exposure to smells. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I love medieval history. I just love history, period. And way back when, during uh, King Henry's reign, they used to carry pomanders. Do you know? Do you know what those are? They're, they're little. Um, they're little balls that had um, essential oils or like you know just uh, different uh, sage in them, different plants. Well, the the reason for that, and they would they would twirl them, is because when they they ate a very oily, heavy, not great <laughs> diet. They had a lot of gas. So they would twirl the pomander um, to, you know, just kind of um, 
make it smell better, you know, for lack of a better word. It smelled very terrible. So with children, what we can do is we can put, um, you know, you can, you can do a little necklace if it's safe, or you can pin to their collar, um, you know, a, a little cotton ball with some essential oil on it um, that would be calming to them that would help them not smell, you know, other smells that would give, give them that dysregulatory um, behavior. Um, you can play smell games, like I said, and then I like to, to, to tell parents um, and teachers to warn children before mealtimes, um, before, before pungent smells. Um, so if, you, if you're going to be making dinner, you know, let the child know there's going to be some different smells that you're smelling. You know, what can we do to co- talk about this? So what I'm asking you to do is take a cognitive approach to this with most of these things. Even though a child won't realize you're taking a cognitive approach and not all children will be able to tolerate the cognitive approach would be, you know, Timothy, we're going to be having dinner soon, and, and Mommy's going to be cooking some onions. I just want to let you know that. Do you want to smell them before I fry them? Have them get involved in the process. And if they're not able to do it, and, and remember, it's not going to take. It's not going to happen in a day. It's not going to happen in a week. It's going to take time. Um, if you recall what I said, it takes 8,000 to 20,000 repetitions to create a new neural pathway. So if we're going to repair a neural pathway, same deal. It's going to take some time, okay? It's not going to happen in one day, but, but warning the children and giving them a schedule does help. Movement. The proprioceptive system um, is part of our muscles, joints, and tendons that tell us what position our body is in. Some red flags for movement that you might see with children who are not developing typically. They're stiff when they run. You see this a lot with um, the population of, of children and adults who might have a diagnosis of autism. They're uncoordinated. They bump into things. They prefer sedentary activities, okay? Um, we have a whole generation of children who are addicted to PlayStation and their phones and all of these things. They have great thumb pads. Um, they're sedentary. And when you ask them to get up and move, um, they have very uncoordinated movements, okay? So what we need to do is we need to help them with that. Um, These are kids that also squeeze into tiny places. Um, There's a little cabinet under this um, platform here, and um, kids that love to do that, they'll squeeze into cabinets, they'll squeeze, you know, you'll be sitting in the chair, in your chair, you know, and they'll squeeze into the one little area that's there. They want that input. Um, Kids that take risks, they have decreased strength or what we call low tone. Um, So rather than being stiff all the time, maybe they're floppy. So it can be one or the other. They're either floppy or they're they're what we call high tone. Um, Excessive clapping, crashing and banging, or self-stimulation, okay? So you've probably seen this on movies or, you know, if you've, you've, again, if you've ever been to Walmart at 5 o'clock, you may have seen this with some parents. But kids that flap, Okay, they're, what they're doing is they're giving their brain input. They're automatically giving it input. They're, they're controlling the input. Kids that rock, kids that bang their head excessively, um, what they're doing is they're trying to get their central nervous system, um, you know, that, that proprioceptive input. One of the things to be aware of with children who bang their heads a lot, especially the autism population or children with sensory processing disorder, is repetitive trauma to the brain. 
okay? We talk about this with athletes. You hear this all the time with athletes. You hear this all the time. But we don't recognize is that children from a young age who have banged their head repeatedly for self-stimulation also have created those tau proteins in the brain that disrupt neural network um, uh, integration and so and development. So what we want to be um, looking at as caregivers is if we have a child who is, who is a headbanger, we want to be aware of that. That can actually lead to more delays that we're not aware of. You can have a child with post-concussion syndrome at age two, and it, and it can be self-motivated. They, they've done it to themselves because they, their, their body is saying, you need more input, okay? So just be aware of that. Um, some ways to combat this, doing large uh, movement activities, crab crawls, elephant walks, bear walks. If you see a child who's W sitting, a W sit would be a child who is sitting on the ground and his legs are spread out this way. Okay, so we have what we used to call Indian sitting or crisscross applesauce like this, okay, with our legs. This is what the legs are doing here. And what that does is it's, it's a sign that we have low tone of the hips. We have external rotation going on in the hips. And this is not good, okay? This is, this is weakness. What's that going to lead to? That's going to lead to an abnormal gait pattern when they start to walk, okay? So we never, never, never let your kiddos W sit. Um, some things that you can do would be gentle swinging and rotations, not excessive, but you're controlling the movement um, to just help, again, organize the central nervous system. Lifting books and boxes, helping, you know, um, my, my oldest son, I always used to have him help with the laundry, and I would pile so much in the laundry, and I would have him take it upstairs because it gave input to the joints and the muscles, and it would help to calm him. Itsy bitsy spiders um, that, or some fingertip games are good things to do. And then working in front of a mirror so that they know where their body is in space. Where's my body position? Okay, some other things. Um, kids with poor movement patterns can have odd body postures. Difficulty with fasteners. These are kids that need the Velcro shoes. They can't tie their shoes, and that's okay, but it is important that we learn to tie the shoes. It is important that we learn to zip our coats and things like that. Sloppy, messy eaters, because from a young age, they never had um, the correct development from an oral motor standpoint. Um, excessive pressure when coloring. Kids that break every crayon in the new box of crayons, it kills me. You buy, oh, there's just something about a new box of crayons, and you give it to the kids, and every crayon is broken because they're putting so much pressure. The reason they're doing this is that their fine motor skills have not developed correctly. They're not able to dissociate the wrist. Remember how I talked about how they'll do all the doorknobs and stuff? That's dissociation of the wrist from the hand. Um, they never got that. So what they're doing is they're trying to control their writing skills by pushing down and using a whole body movement instead of a fine motor movement where we have dissociation of fingertips and different things like that. And these are kids that will break their toys as well. 
Um, so what we can do, again, lots of movement breaks. One of the things I like to do with a group of kids, so whether you're a Sunday school teacher or if you work in a clinic or if you're a classroom teacher, um, you know, we, we play um, Jericho is falling. The walls are falling down. And we'll go up to the walls as, as a team and we'll push on the walls. So when you do that, you're putting pressure in all of your joints, okay? And that actually is helping organize your central nervous system, okay? The other thing you can do as you get older with older children, chair push-ups. In your chair, you can do those, you know, right where you're sitting. Um, I like to teach adolescents or older kids how to take their own movement breaks that are socially acceptable. Go to the bathroom, you know, do some jumping jacks, do some squats, do something, you know, d different things like that. You know you're getting uptight. You know you're getting dysregulated because your body is starting to tell you to rock or you're starting to flap. Um, kids that rock and flap, if we can get them some big core body movements with proprioceptive input, typically they will able, be able to self-regulate and calm down. Using a therapy ball to sit on or a wiggle seat, okay, well, for younger kids. A wiggle seat, go to the dollar store, get a beach ball, and blow it up a little tiny bit, and then sit on it. And what it does is it, you just wiggle on it while you're sitting. So you don't have to spend 40 or $50 on a wiggle seat. There are ways that you can do it on your own. So when we look at self-regulation, I've talked a lot about this word. I want to give you some red flags of what you might see. Um, so what we're looking for in the middle here is just right. We don't want a child that's regulating too low, and we don't want a child that's regulating too high, okay? So low would be that unresponsive kiddo, the one that's always lethargic and, and you know, like, does he move? Does he, you know, does he respond? Um, and then the too high kid is the kid that's always reacting, always. So simple activities to help regulate if, if a child is too high. And we've all seen these kids, and maybe you have kids like this of your own. Heavy work. Heavy work is what I'm talking about is lifting, doing that joint input. The, the Jericho is falling down. We're going we're gonna to hold the walls. A metronome. Calming, um, sucking, or chewing on something, um, taffy, or something that, that works the oral motor system, that, that gives you some, a workout. It's kind of like a workout for your, for your mouth. It's very calming. And purposeful activity. Um, so with children, um, they know that their, their play is purposeful. Their play is work. So one of the things that I try to do with children is I try to give them purposeful activity so that they're helping, okay? So, Timothy, you are going to be my helper today. I need this box of books taken down to the, to the office. Well, I've already told Hazel in the office that Timothy is going to be coming down with a box of books, so she has another box of books to send him back with, okay? And there's absolutely nothing I need from either of these boxes. It's to give him purpose that he's helping. Children who are dysregulated frequently hear the word no, stop it, calm down, settle down. But they don't hear, thank you, great job, I really appreciate your help. Okay, but they, they're no different than a kid who can regulate, a typically developed child. Typically developed children are just more pleasant for us. They're 
easier. They're not as much work for us as caregivers. And so one of the things that I really, really um, preach to my therapists is give them purpose. Give them something to do because they will be members of society someday who, you know, maybe, maybe they're the next Steve Jobs. You know, that guy wasn't always regulated either. <laughs> you know, if you've ever read his, his biography, he, um, he, he was quite frankly probably an Asperger's autistic spe- spectrum guy, and most of your engineers are. You know, but do we want engineers and do we want viable members of our society who hate to be with other people or who understand purpose. And so even though a child might be difficult, even though they might be dysregulated, anything we can do to give them purpose is really important. Okay, so what about the low end of things? Those kids that just want to lay around, they don't have any purpose. You see this a lot with teenagers. Um, you know, my 14-year-old is really good at this right now, um, and it's, it's kind of hard. So um, quick activities. So I will have my 14-year-old go take the dog for a walk, or I'll have him throw the ball for the dog. Anything, again, that's purposeful that adds value. Um, energizing music or metronome, whereas with your kiddo who was too high, your metronome beat might be 40 or 50 beats a minute. With this kid, I'm going to go 60 to 70 beats a minute, okay? And, and, and the way you think about this is when you get in an elevator and they have the elevator music or you're on hold with uh, AT&T for an hour trying to get through, can you hear me? Um, you are listening to music that's just very calming and soothing. That's the kind of music you're going to play for the too high kiddo. For the too low kiddo, you're going to play some Stephen Curtis Chapman. You're going to play, you know, some Switchfoot. Um, you're going you're gonna to play some Reliant K for them, okay? So that's, that's how you get them to activate. Food for these kids, crunchy, hard, or sour, things that will alert the system, something that, that wakes them up, peppermint, okay? Peppermint is great for these kiddos. And then um, heavy work again. So heavy work works on both sides. It can help to wake up and it can help to calm. It depends on what the the body needs. Okay. Um, I'm going to go into just a little bit of what you might see with ADHD. What time does this session end? I want to make sure that I... 10.20? Okay, we have 10 minutes. So I'm going to go through this really quick and then I will stay around if you guys have any questions. Three primary characteristics of ADHD are inattention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity, but they may vary, okay? The child with ADHD typically shows these characteristics before the age of seven, and this this behavior is consistent over a period of years, okay? Whereas you might have seen this at age two, and maybe he grew out of it a little bit, now at age five, he's a little more distracted. You want to make sure that it's consistent. You want to make sure that, that we're not giving labels and Ritalin and medication to kids that don't need it. So think back to what we learned today about could it be a visual system? Could it be an ocular motor? Are they unable auditorily to listen and watch at the same time? So think back through, are there other things that this could be? Um, Kids with ADHD inattention, really hard time paying attention, hard time with finishing projects, easily distracted. With hyperactivity, pretty easy to understand what it is. These kids can become aggressive. They can go from zero to 50 in, in less than a half a second. 
they have a difficult time transitioning from one activity to the next. Um, when it's time to go from a play date, they have a breakdown, okay? Uh, when it's time to transition from um, the activity that they're really enjoying to an activity that maybe they don't enjoy, that they're going to have a breakdown. Impulsivity, these kids are, um, they're, quite, they're quite interesting. Um, you know, they're, they're the ones that have no filter, you know. <laughs> Mommy said Hillary isn't nice, you know, or in, in, you know, in the bus, you know, or whatever it is. Mommy says she doesn't like Trump, you know, or whatever. And you're like, we don't talk about politics, you know, or whatever. But your kid's going to hear, they're going to blurt out everything you've ever said. And they'll usually do it in front of the church deacon. Okay, um, every bad word you've ever, ever said, even if it's one time, they're going to repeat it. Um, they're going to disrupt other children's play and interrupt conversations. They're going to answer questions that are not intended for them. Um, they're, they have a really hard time keeping their emotions in check, and they, and they do overreact. They're your overreactors, okay? So that's very briefly ADHD. I want to talk about autism because there, there is some misunderstanding about what autism is and when we can diagnose it. Now, I'm an occupational therapist. I cannot diagnose autism. It needs to be diagnosed by a medical professional. And um, so teachers cannot diagnose either. You have to have a medical degree, um, such as an MD or a DO, to um, actually diagnose. But symptoms typically start before the age of three and cause delays or deficits in many skills. Um, while one person might have certain symptoms, another person might have um, very, very different systems. They do not, symptoms, they do not look the same. Autism Spectrum Disorder, or ASD, Asperger's, pervasive developmental disorder, these are all part of autism, okay, autism spectrum disorder. So we talked a lot about this already, but communication, language might be very slow to develop. If they're verbal, they might not know how to sustain a conversation. By the time a child with autism has been through the system or they've been in school for several years, like a 13 or a 14-year-old, they will know that they need to look at you when you're talking. They just won't be able to process correctly the social skills that are going on, okay? Um, they do struggle to label places, people, and things. One of the, the um, marks of autism is that a child with autism, they seem to be aloof. They seem to be cold. They seem to be non-emotional. And one of the things that we're learning is it's because the white matter differs in their brain. There, there's just some neuro, the way their neuro processing has developed is just different. Um, and they're also very aware of what's happening to them. So what's happening in my world is all I can care about. We teach our children from a very early age empathy. Say you're sorry. If you knock someone down, help them up. You know, um, he's sad. Well, a child with autism doesn't understand emotions, and they have to learn what an emotion looks like. And so a lot of times what we're doing is we're helping them, we're helping them look at pictures. What would the emotion on this person's face be? Is it sad? Is it mad? Um, and... Sometimes when a child with autism or even an adult with 
autism has a tragedy in their life or trauma or if there's something that happens, they will have no empathy for anyone around them because if they're okay, that's all that matters. Um, there was a child that I was working with whose grandfather died, and he was very close with his grandfather, and his mom came in and she said, you know, he's not crying, he's not grieving, there's no grief process. Well, for children and adults with autism, there typically isn't because there's no need for the grief process. Because in his mind, he's okay. His grandfather's dead, but I'm okay. I'm, I'm good. You know, and that's a, it's the way the brain has developed. It's not that they don't want to be empathetic. They just don't have the capacity. And this is also different than a sociopath or a psychopath. Let's not get confused with that. That is a complete disregard for other people and emotions. But an autism brain would be more prone to, am I okay, am I stabilized before I can work or, or worry about anyone else, Okay. All right, so communication, a rigid, rigid understanding of words, okay? So I can call that a chair, but if my student with autism knows that that's a seat, he's going to argue with me for 15 minutes about the fact that that is not a chair, that's a seat, okay? Is, is this beige or is it khaki, okay? Very rigid understanding of words, um, they are not the ones that say, look at me, look at me, you know, watch me, watch me do this. A lot of kids will want you to share in their experiences. Children with autism will not want you to share in those. They don't need you to do that. Um, they don't point or wave goodbye. They're not using gestures. Um, they're not asking for information. Um, or they're not telling you information. How was your field trip to the zoo today, um, Haley? We went to the zoo. What did you see? Animals. You know, they're very matter of fact, you know, and so if you want to know more information, you have to actually ask, what was your favorite animal today? The giraffe. Tell me why that was your favorite animal today. It's orange. Okay, that's about all the information you're going to get, and you're okay with that. Socialization is very different with the autism child. Um, they do seem to be in their own world. They don't build relationships to others. They know they desire friendships because socially it's appropriate. They just don't know how to get there, okay? Most children or teens with autism will tell you, yeah, I, I wish I had a friend who got me. Well, getting him, you know, accepting him might mean that you literally sit on the couch together and watch Netflix side by side. That's friendship for him. It's very, it looks very, very different. But it's not wrong. It's just different, Okay. Um, they don't demonstrate emotional reciprocity. Um, they don't, uh, they have difficulty with imaginative or pretend play, except they'll get stuck on, like if they're a Star Wars buff. They will play out every scene from Star Wars, typically over and over and over again, but they won't have any interest in Star Trek, okay? They won't have any interest in The Hobbit. It's just Star Wars, and there's something about it. Maybe it's, it's the lightsabers or whatever, so they get very stuck on that. 
Stereotypical behaviors, high levels of anxiety, repetitive movements, spinning and rocking, um, they get stuck on the same things over and over again. So we call this perseveration. Um, one of my best friends had a child, he's now 21, who had autism. And, and his was acquired autism. It was actually from immunizations. And he actually would sit with his um, Thomas the Train, and he would just watch it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, over and over and over and over and over again. And that was one of the first signs that we knew that he had that uh, delay going on. Um, these kids have increased sensitivity, textures, light, food groups, um, very odd movement patterns. Okay, so I've got like three minutes. I'm going to try to get you guys out of here on time. So what I want you to understand, if you're working within missions or you as a family have a child who is at risk or has red flags, you have unique needs. Your location, frequent moves, relationships, poor continuity of service, your support system. I will tell you that with our oldest child, and he is great today. He's learned how to regulate, you know. And it, we, we were really disgruntled by our church and their um, ability to understand our child when he wouldn't go to Sunday school or when he wouldn't be empathetic or when he, he wasn't able to do the things that your typically developed children could do. So be, be careful about that. Just, just give people grace. But on, on your side, give other people grace as well. You know, it, kids, kids today have a lot going on, but parents even have a harder time because they, they are, you know, we all want to think, you know, it's my fault. What did I do as a mom? Well, nothing. It could be the development of the brain that's wrong. And so give yourself a little bit of grace. Resources. Um, I'm going to give you a list of resources here, but also I want you to remember that parents will be grieving a child who is um, different. And in other countries, sometimes they refuse to acknowledge a child as part of the culture. Um, you know, so a child with Down syndrome or Mongolianism in China, you know, they, they just disregard that child um, and in other cultures. And so we want to be aware of that. We want to help bring understanding to that. Um, also, fathers. Fathers in America especially have a really hard time with this. Military families especially. The dad will not even accept the child because he's different. Home programming is important. So your primary care doctor can help. Therapies can help. Um, in America, you always need to refer to a PCP or a primary care physician because if you're going to use your insurance, you have to have a diagnosis. If you're cash pay, then it doesn't matter. And in other countries, um, that's going to be different no matter where you are. This is a list of resources. Um, one of the biggest resources I will tell you is this Understanding Your Child's Sensory Systems Signals by Angie Voss. It's, it's this one right here. This is one of the best resources on this list because um, it, it's free, for one thing, and um, it actually gives you, like, if your child is doing this or if a child you're working with is acting this way, try these things, okay? So it's kind of a, a really good resource for that. All right, so we got through this session. I will stay up here if anybody has any questions. Thank you so much for attending today. It was fun to talk with you.